Well, we're going to continue our lesson in Mark. Maybe we'll see if we get through it today. Maybe I'll talk faster than I normally do. Last week, we ended with the teaching that Jesus described what the cost was of those who truly wanted to follow him. And that cost of following Jesus would be high. But in comparison to eternity, it's not that high. So now we're going to pick it up at chapter 9. Verse 1 says this. Jesus went on to say, I assure you that some of you standing here right now will not die before you see the kingdom of God arrive in such power, in great power. Now, I had to do some digging on this verse because even though it's a new chapter, it seems like it ties in with the other chapter, chapter 8. Like it's a continuation of that. And Why didn't he include this in chapter 8? Well, how many know that chapters and verses were added later? God's word, man added it to make it easier to find stuff. There was no chapter, verses, no breaks in the original text. So I went to Matthew's account of the same thing and it says this. Matthew 16, 27. For I, the Son of Man, will come in the glory of my Father with his angels and will judge all people according to their deeds. End of chapter 8 in Mark. Then he goes on and finishes it in the same chapter. And I assure you that some of you standing here right now will not die before you see me, the Son of Man, coming in my kingdom. So, which one is it? Is it a part of chapter 8? Is it a part of chapter 9? And the answer to that is yes. Now, this is not referring to the second coming because Jesus hadn't returned yet and all those guys are dead at that point. So what's he referring to? Most likely, the day of, he's talking about the day of Pentecost when God did pour out his spirit on those in the upper room. When Christ baptized his followers with the Holy Spirit and with great power. Acts chapter 1. But when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you'll receive power and will tell people about me everywhere. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And from this point on, the gospel of Christ, signs and wonders and miracles spread. I mean, rapidly. There's only one guy with Jesus. Now there's a whole bunch of them going out. God's kingdom God's kingdom grew with power. It also meant the end of the Jewish system, which takes us now into chapter 9. And I want to read chapters, or chapter 9, verses 2 through 13. It says, Six days later, Jesus took Peter, James, and John to the top of a mountain. No one else was there. As the men watched, Jesus' appearance changed, and his clothing became dazzling white, far whiter than earthly process could ever make it. Then Elijah and Moses appeared and began talking with Jesus. <clears throat> Teacher, this is wonderful, Peter explained. We will make three shrines for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He didn't really know what to say, for they were all terribly afraid. Then a cloud came over them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my, my beloved son, listen to him. Suddenly they looked around, and Moses and Elijah were gone, and only Jesus was with them. As they descended the mountainside, he told them not to tell anyone what they had seen until he, the Son of Man, had risen from the dead. So they kept it to themselves. But they often asked each other, what does he mean by rising from the dead? Now they began asking him, why do the teachers of religious law insist that Elijah must return before the Messiah comes? Jesus responded, Elijah is indeed coming first to set everything in order. Why then is it written the scriptures say that the Son of Man must be suffer and be treated with utter contempt? But I tell you, Elijah has already come, 
And he was badly mistreated, just as the scriptures predicted. Well, let's pray real quick. Father, thank you for your word. And again, we pray that you help us to rightly divide your word of truth so that everything is said is exactly the truth of your word. And we thank you for what you're going to show in Jesus' name. Amen. So, the transfiguration was kind of a a short burst, a display of the glory of Christ for these guys. Up until this point, he had just been a man walking around. Now they get to see just a short little snippet of his glory. The glory up to that point had been hidden from, from from everyone, and especially the three. But it's going to be revealed to everyone on the last day. And what's he referring to? Back in Mark chapter 8, we talked about it, the end of chapter 8. It says, if a person is ashamed of me and my message in these adulterous and sinful days, I, will, I, the Son of Man, will be ashamed of that person when I return in the glory of my Father with the holy angels. So he wanted to show them it's going to require faith to be able to live up to the standard of persecution that's going to come. And they saw a little glory, a little bit of glory of what's going to happen at the end. And so six days later, Jesus takes them up to show them this glory he's talking about. Verse 2 says, Six days later, Jesus took Peter, James, and John to the top of a mountain. No one else was there. Now it says six days later, so it, it, so it shows you that it ties in to the previous event. If it had just been some random event that happened at some other point, the six-day reference wouldn't be there. He wants us to see that this is tied in six days later. This is still part of what he's trying to teach them. It's not something that happened apart from the previous teaching. It's, it's a part of what you heard before. Now, I, I do, I, talking about these three, Peter, James, and John, this is kind of the inner circle of Jesus' friends. These are the same three that were there when Jesus raised Jairus' daughter. Now, I believe, this is, I think, the 12 and the crowds represent a model of friendships that we have. We have the crowds of people that we know. We all know a lot of people, right? I graduated with a class of 750 people. There's a website dedicated to our class, and we periodically talk to each other occasionally. And I personally knew about 10 or 12 of those folks. The 750 and the 3,300 that were in the high school with us, I don't know them. The crowd's not my closest friends. I would call them acquaintances. That's the crowds that were following Jesus. They were acquaintances. They knew him, but they really didn't know him. We all have that mass number of people that we know, but we really don't know. Maybe your, your high school, your job, all these people that you work with or know, but you only have a few of those that you're friends with. Then you have the 12 these are the, the close folks you let in, you share some personal issues with. Um, that's the disciples. Now, we came from a larger church, and if you know in a larger church, you don't know everybody. We had a couple of different services, and we would, I made the mistake of asking people who came to a different service than we did, is this your first time? And they say, no, we've been coming for 10 years. So you have people in a larger church that you don't know. You know them, but you don't know them. In our circle of friends in our church, we had you know, like a dozen or so, maybe less, less than that, that we were friends with, we hung out with, we shared secrets with. That's who Jesus has as the 12. 
you hang out with them. Those are the folks that have your backs when they're needed to. They care about you. They love you. They pray for you. But you may not call them your best friends. They're your friends, but not your best friends. And out of those 12 or so, you have a few that are the closest friends. The three that you hang around with, that you share your most intimate details with. Maybe you, you share personal struggles with. You pray for each other. They know things about you that nobody else does. Those are the ones you really let into your life. You share things, your struggles, your failures, things you face, victories you have. And that was Peter, James, and John. And then you have the one. John would be the one. The one person that knows everything about you, your darkest secrets, your biggest struggles, the one who prays for you consistently. More often than not, that's your spouse. If not, then there's one person in your life that you can count on more than anyone else, no matter what. And for Jesus, that was John. John 19, standing near the cross where Jesus' mother and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple he loved, he said to her, woman, he is your son. And he said to this disciple, she is your mother. And, and from then on, this disciple took her into his home. If Jesus had a template like this for his friends and his acquaintances, I think it's a good model for us to have. You don't let everybody into your life all the way in. You have a group that you have as friends, your close ones you hang around with. Then you have inner friends that you use as accountability. And then you have one or two that you really lend into your life that help you, that have your back, that hold you up. That's how our relationships should be. But notice that it said that Jesus did have friends. You can't go through life without having friends. You need someone there with you whether it's your immediate family, your extended family, your friends, people that you let into your life. I remember growing up, my, I remember my mother always going out with you know, her girlfriends from work. They would go to dinner or whatever. And this happened about once a month or so. Not once in my entire life ever did my dad ever go out with anybody that was his friend. He didn't have any friends. And not because he wasn't a friendly guy. He just didn't want friends. He was that kind of a guy. Never had a friend. He would talk about friends he had before he got married. But never had a friend as we were growing up. Even until the day he died, he didn't have any friends. And I thought, how, how sad is that? I know after the kids were grown and gone and my mom died 15 years before he did, no friends. God calls us as a community to be a community, a family. I heard someone say this morning that a church is a family. You should know and care about the folks in this family. But Mark goes on in verse 2. It says, as the men watched, Jesus' appearance changed, and his clothing became dazzling, dazzling and white, far whiter than any earthly process could ever make it. Now, the phrase, his appearance changed, is the term that we use, transfigured. And that term is used in most other translations. And the word is metamorpho if i get that right which gives us our term metamorphosis a changing from one form into another form a change that happens on the outside because of a change that's made 
on the inside. Now, your physical appearance may not change, but when you come to know Christ, what happens because of a change of heart, now the outside, the, your appearance, how you act and behave changes because of that transfiguration. And that's the same word that's used in Romans 12. It says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. Change from the inside out by the renewing of your mind. 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we who, are, who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. It describes your progressive change into the moral likeness of Christ. When you first get saved, you're excited for God, you don't know a lot, but you want to change, you want to know more. And the more you study, the more you read, the more you begin to change because God's word shows you where you need to change. People may tell you, but your conviction is gonna come from reading what God's word says. Things you wanna add to your life, things you wanna detract from your life, all that comes as you read and you are transformed. Hopefully, the person you were 15, 20 years ago is not the same person you are today because God hopefully is transforming you and renewing your mind on a daily basis. I, I constantly think of the, there's a Bruce Springsteen song called uh, Glory Days. And it talks about how someone who's been out of high school for 20 years still wears his letterman jacket and still remembers all the things he did in high school and wishes for those glory days. Well, you can't live like that. You want your life to be different. That was great, but this is now. How are you living now? Is what you're doing now matter to the kingdom of God? What you did 20 years ago might have been awesome, but it's, it's gone. You continue to transform into what God is continuing to make you into. We should all expect a transformation in our lives based on what Jesus is doing on the inside. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. In other words, there, your lives should be markedly different now than when you first came to know him. Is your life changing? Or is it exactly the same as it was 15, 20 years ago? If you're not, and you act and you appear exactly the same as you did even before you got saved, if everything's still hanging on that you had before you came to know Christ, what's the Bible tell us to do? 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, examine yourself to see if your faith is genuine. Test yourself. If you cannot tell that Jesus Christ is among you, it means you've failed the test. In other words, you're looking at your life and it's the same as it was before you came to know Christ. It hasn't changed a bit. You're still doing all the old things. God says, well, you might want to check your faith because you might not have really gotten saved. One's, one commentator says this about, about the transfiguration. Quote, for a moment they saw the human appearance of Jesus changed into that of a heavenly being in the transformed world. They get to see a, a snippet of what glory is going to be like. Now notice the order of events. First, Jesus talks about the suffering and the death. And then he shows them the transfigured glory. That's the order we should expect. Hardship and suffering, possibly martyrdom, then comes the glory. 
Everything we experience on earth, the trials and tribulations of life that we all experience, that's going to be first. After that is the glory part. That's what we're looking forward to. Verse 4 says, Then Elijah and Moses appeared and began talking with Jesus. Now, a lot of different theories about why these two guys were chosen. I think one of the better references, the better meanings is Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. And both of them are fulfilled in Jesus. Luke 24, 27, then Jesus quoted the passages about the writings of Moses and all the prophets explaining what all the scriptures said about himself. And then Matthew 5, 17, don't misunderstand why I've come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. I have come to fulfill them. Also, if we look at how their lives ended, it's a symbol of what's going to happen to us at the end. Moses died and was buried. Elijah was raptured. Sound familiar? Talking about the return of Jesus in 1 Thessalonians 4. It says, first of all, Christians who have died will rise from their graves. Moses. Then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up to the clouds to meet the Lord in the end. Elijah. All focusing on what is happening now and what is going to happen in the future. Verse 5 says, then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters for you. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. So, Peter being Peter, starts talking without thinking about it. I mean, it sounds like a good idea, right? It sounds like a good idea. Hey, we're on the mountaintop with these spiritual leaders. Let's just spend some time enjoying the presence of God. I know, Jesus, you just spoke about suffering and, and death, but let's just avoid all that and just hang out here for a while. In fact, if we build these things, we can hang out here forever. Wouldn't we all like to avoid the troubles of life? and stay on the mountaintop. Christian, I, I thought Christian conferences and, and some churches are, are kind of like that. You go to a conference for a couple of days, a weekend, and it's, you hear the best speakers that, that's known, the best worship team that's around, and you're with other believers on a regular day-to-day -day basis, and you're just there worshiping God 24-7. Everything that's back home, your job, the struggles, that's all back there. You're not there. You're here in this conference. And it is awesome. And then Sunday comes, and it's time to go home. Back to the daily day, day to day stuff. Why? Because you're not meant to stay at the conference. You're not meant to stay on a spiritual high 24 7. You're supposed to take that with you when you go home and live and exhi exhibit that type of experience at home. That type of experience is what heaven's going to be like. It's a little two or three day time, but now we're going back to the world. Now we're going back to living the day to day. I heard an expression once, nothing of value grows on a mountaintop. Everything grows great in the valley. Our spiritual growth is in the valley. <laughs> And there's work to be done in the valley. You can go on the mountaintop, 
but you've got to bring that back down and use it to work in the valley. People are hurting in the valley. In the valley. And hopefully we come down from the mountaintop and share with people in the valley what God has done for us on the mountaintop. Now, the NIV says it this way, and there's a parenthesis around it in verse 6. It says, talking about Peter, he did not know what to say. They were so frightened. There's a little parenthesis around that. A couple of commentators think that's, that's Mark's way of kind of defending Peter. Okay, we know Mark's, this is from Peter's perspective, Mark's writing it. And it was sort of like Mark's trying to excuse what Peter's saying. He doesn't know what he's talking about. I know it's what he said, but he's not talking about that. He didn't know what he was saying. He's trying to cover up for his friend's outburst. We don't know if that's true, but that's one. A couple of commentators seem to think that. Verse 7 goes on and says, Then a cloud appeared and enveloped him, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Now, the cloud shouldn't have been a new phenomenon for them. They should have, they should have recognized that from their Old Testament. Exodus 24, 16 says, For six days the cloud covered the mountains, and on the seventh day the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. Exodus 16, 10, While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert, and there was the glory of God, or the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. Now, if they knew their Old Testament, they, might, they should have recognized that that's what's happening here, God speaking to them. And again, then God speaks in an authoritative tone. It wasn't, hey, how you guys doing? You need to love each other. He says, good job, Peter. Is that what he says? Yeah, that's a good idea. Why don't you all stay on the mountaintop for a while? That's a good idea. No. He didn't say stay with the experience. He said stay with what Jesus says. The experience is awesome but you need to listen to God's word. Now, they had a genuine experience up there. The power, the glory of God was there. It's not this kind of experience. He's saying, I want you to use this experience to change your life. And how do you do that? Listen to what God's word is saying in the, in the experience. The experience mattered. If it didn't matter, why have it in the Bible? Why have those two guys appear? Because the experience that they had, that supernatural experience, matters in their life. But you can't stay forever with that experience. You have to use that experience to propel you on, to become more mature. And he's also saying the experience has to line up with God's word, Right? If we have an experience, we, you know, we believe that the gifts of the Spirit are for today. All of them today. But in those expressions, they better line up with what God's Word says. They're not going to be different from God, what God says. They're not going to contradict what God's Word says. Jesus says, hey, this is a great experience. Listen to what I'm saying to you. Don't let the experience overrule what God's Word is saying to you. We still expect God to speak and move in our services. We want and we expect those things to happen. And we don't discount when that happens. We, we want it. We expect those things to happen. But those experiences are designed to get us to listen to God better. What does that mean? I mean, we want to hear 
tongues, interpretation, word of knowledge, all of those are spoken things. God wants us to hear what he's saying. We need to be sensitive to what the Holy Spirit might be saying to us in your personal life. If we're only about the experience in church or a conference and it doesn't move us closer when we get home, then we're missing the point of the experience. Peter was missing the point of the experience. Hey, it was a great experience. It was a legit one. But it was one that was designed to make him to be able to listen to Jesus better. Verse 8 says, Suddenly when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. Guess what? Experience is over. You had it. It's over. Jesus is still there. The disciples were not to look to Moses or Elijah as powerfully used by God as they were. They're not to look to anyone else. These guys were pillars of the Old Testament. Jesus says, don't look to them right now. All that's over. Look to me. The only one they need to see is Jesus. You don't need to have a spiritual bigwig or influential teacher or preacher in your life. They can be great. They can help you. But you need to be sure that they're following Jesus. Paul says, follow me only as I follow Christ. In other words, if I'm not following Christ, then don't look to me. Follow me as I'm following Christ. Ministry isn't built only upon spectacular visions and signs and wonders, if that's the only thing you want. If you're only here for the supernatural, but it's not going to really affect your life, then what's going to happen is probably not going to happen. Or if it happens, it's not going to be God doing it. Because people follow Jesus not for his message, but for his healing, the food, all the things he was doing for them. And when that ended, what happened? People left, right? We can't be the ones that are only looking for the experience without following through on what God is saying to you through the experience. I know there's people that go from conference to conference looking for the next spiritual high. But they never let the experience change them. Now we're praying for and we expect God to move through the gifts of the Spirit. Signs and wonders, healing, at all. But if they don't cause you to grow closer to the Lord and become more like Jesus, and if people aren't ultimately being saved through those giftings, then we're missing the point of the gifts of the Spirit. And they most likely won't happen. If God is speaking, as he did last week, saying that basically no one's guaranteed of tomorrow, that's what we heard, today's the day of salvation, if we don't do anything with that, then why was it necessary for God to say it? How many believe that God's word doesn't return void? And that message is going to still resonate with someone who didn't respond at that point. God's going to keep that in the back of their mind. And at some point, God's going to bring it back to them. There's a purpose to what we heard, not just because, hey, God spoke, yay. What does it mean? How's it going to change me? Does it get me more fired up to witness to folks, to see people get saved, to realize that, man, if God is saying, you ain't got tomorrow, and we know that, God's word says that, and life experience tells us that, but if God is actually saying that to us, then maybe we better listen a little bit harder. <laughs> that people, we read it 
Anna was telling me about an article of a whole family that was killed in a car wreck on 81, right? It, there was, uh, some goofy tire blowout, car hit a truck, killed four people in the car, the truck driver. They were on their way to something, a race, a race. They were on their way to a race. Never thought that was going to happen. You never know. You never know when it's going to be. And if God is saying, hey, nobody's guaranteed tomorrow, we might want to listen up a little bit harder and let it change what we do Monday through Saturday and not just, yay, on Sunday. Would you stand as we close this morning? Well, that clock's slow, but that's okay. <laughs> that's cool because on that clock, we're under time. Would you bow your heads for a moment? I never want to assume that everybody who is in church actually has come to know Christ. So if you're here this morning and you feel God speaking to you and you know the truth, maybe if you've been here, this is not your first time, you've heard it before. Today's the day of salvation. You need to make a choice while you still can. And we don't want to scare anybody into the kingdom, but we want you to face reality. That no one is guaranteed of tomorrow. And if we die in our sins without accepting Christ's forgiveness, then we will wind up in eternal hell. But you have the option of winding up in eternal heaven paradise God gives you the choice your entire life but once that life is over you have already made your choice if you die in your sins there is no second chance there's no purgatory that you can get prayed out of there's no way to make it from one side to the other God gives you however many years you have, 60, 70, 80 years to make the choice. If you don't make it within those years, you've made the choice. So if you're here and you've never really made that decision to trust Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, the sin that caused Jesus to die, we weren't there, but our sins crucified him. And if you reject God's free forgiveness now there is no second chance but if you're here and you want to accept that now you want your life to be changed by the power of God from the inside out as we talked about transfigured transformed into a new person one that you may not even recognize in the future because of what God can do in your life today I want you to raise your hand you're the one God's speaking to Maybe you said a prayer years ago. You trusted Christ, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, but you've not really done anything with it. You, you're in church periodically. Your life hasn't changed that much. Well, then this message is for you too because you need to be ready. When Jesus returns, there's not gonna be a, you're not gonna have any time to make that choice then, not to make, your life commit to Jesus at that point. 
And if you keep going on the path you're going, it's only going to get worse. You go to church every once in a while, eventually you're not going to go to church at all. You read your Bible occasionally, eventually you're not going to read your Bible at all. You pray once in a while, eventually you're not going to pray at all. This is the call for you to make that change today. And you know where you are with the Lord. It's easy to put on a good front and let everyone think that, hey, everything's perfect, me and God are tight. But you know the difference. The Bible says, as, as Phil said, if we confess our sin, he is faith, he's talking to Christians. He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin, to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So if there's sin in your life and you know it, it's in the back of your mind, maybe you're doing it consistently or periodically, the Bible says you need to get rid of that now. Confess that sin to the Lord. You don't have to tell me. Tell the Lord from your heart. The Bible says he'll forgive it, wipe it clean, and he chooses to forget. And your life is a brand new slate today. And you can start living for God today. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands because only you and God know who that is. But I'm going to pray to that end. So Father, we do thank you for allowing us to gather in your name. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the, the caution that you give us in your word to make sure that we are serving you to the best of our ability. We're not saved by what we do. We're saved totally by the grace of Jesus. We just want our lives to be a reflection of how good you have been to us. We want to say thank you just by simply how we live. So Lord, I pray for each person here, those that are, they want to get better with God. And I pray that you would help them with that as they confess that, but the Holy Spirit fill them again, allow their lives to be transformed from the inside out, let their countenance be different, let their attitudes and their actions be different and allow people around us to, to take notice. And as we read, we see the great works of God working in our life. People will see that, and they will know that God's working. So Lord, I pray your hand of blessing upon each one of us as we leave today. Allow us to continue to be filled with the Holy Spirit, live our lives directed by the Holy Spirit, and allow our lives to be pleasing to you. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week. See you Wednesday night. The Chosen.